the time of your supposed conversion. It is no certain evidence that a man is born of God because he can specify the particular time when he believes he was converted. I have no doubt that there are those who can tell the period of time when they pass from death unto life, and this may be deemed a happy circumstance in their religious experience. When the love of God is so sensibly shed abroad in the soul, and the light of his countenance so sensibly descends upon the heart, and the glory of God so sensibly fills the mind, that the time of its influence can be distinctly discerned, it may well be the source of grateful rejoicing. But this is by no means the experience even of the great body of God's people. So far as I have been able to form any estimate of this subject, by far the greater part of real Christians are the subjects of a true work of grace before they themselves are aware of any change having taken place. The Holy Spirit does not always shine upon the work He has wrought in the heart immediately upon changing it, and the reflex act of the mind that discerns the change not infrequently is reserved for a period considerably subsequent to the change itself. It is no proof that a man is not a Christian, that he cannot tell when he was converted, nor is it any proof that he is a Christian, that he can tell the time of his supposed conversion. The date of which he is so ready to specify may be delusive and spurious. The time and manner of conversion can never decide either the genuineness or spuriousness of the work. The most that the great body of Christians can say as to these is, I cannot tell how the work was accomplished. All I know is that a sensible change has taken place in the course of my affections, and that whereas I was once blind, now I see. Let none suppose that by this I mean to say that a change of heart is attended with no visible effect. There are effects which cannot be concealed and which lie open to the inspection of every eye. All I wish to say is that it is not a certain and infallible effect that the subjects of it should be ascertained of the exact time when it took place. It is as true of religious affections as of any other that the tree is known by its fruits. Examine yourselves, therefore, and see whether you be in the faith. There is a hope that is as an anchor to the soul, and there is a hope that perisheth when God taketh the soul away. I would not wound you, but I am jealous for you, even with an anxious jealousy. You have been converted to the profession of religion, but have you been converted to the grace of religion? Who runs so as to obtain? Who fights not uncertainly, and as one that beateth the air? Who is not almost, but altogether a Christian? See to it that you build not your hope upon the sand. You may rest satisfied with a mere name to live, but if it be so, the time will come when you will be confounded with disappointment and sink into despair. Alas, that there should be any who think themselves vessels of mercy, when they are only the vessel of wrath, fitted to destruction. Oh, I charge you before God and His holy angels to be faithful in this concern. I shall endeavor to present you with a few considerations hereafter that may enable you to decide with greater accuracy whether you are building on the rock than do those negative evidences which have been presented in the preceding pages and which may perhaps distress you. 
But I would rather see your hopes die now than your souls hereafter. I would rather see the mass rent asunder now than torn off by the hand of discriminating righteousness hereafter. I would rather see you weep now than weep and wail forever. Love to God In the preceding essays I have referred to several things which neither prove nor disprove the existence of true religion in the soul. A man may be unexceptionable in his moral deportment. He may be well instructed in all the doctrines of the gospel. He may put on the form of religion. He may be endued with eminent gifts. He may have been the subject of deep convictions. He may himself be persuaded that he is a converted man and be able to specify the particular time when he supposes he was converted. And still it is possible this very man may be in the gall of bitterness and bonds of iniquity. We do not affirm that this is any evidence against his conversion, but only affirm that it is not conclusive evidence that he is converted. The view we have taken, therefore, is only a negative view and decides nothing. We are still left in darkness and embarrassment as to the great question. Upon the details of the positive and satisfactory evidences of the new birth, it is now our purpose to enter. Among the most convincing of these is love to God. Love to God involves a conviction of His excellence, an inner contentment towards the revelation of His nature, a kindly disposition toward His interest and gratitude for His favors. The man who possesses this sublime affection has reason to believe that his character differs from what it was by nature, the carnal mind is enmity against God, Romans 8, verse 7. Though unrenewed men may possess some true knowledge, both of the natural and moral perfections of the deity, and though they cannot contemplate his greatness and goodness without discerning his excellence, still they take no delight in his excellence, they feel no benevolence toward his interests, no true gratitude for his favors. But this deep-root disaffection toward God is superseded in the renewed mind by holy love. As the first and great commandment is, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thine understanding. Luke 10.27 So the love of God is the first and highest affection of the renovated heart. It belongs to true love always to have correct perceptions of its object. The newborn soul does not clothe the divine being with such attributes and such only as suit a depraved taste and then fall down and worship him, but he loves the true character of God as it is revealed in the scriptures. For to love a false character of God, you perceive, would be to hate his true character. The cause of love to God is the agency of the Holy Spirit. The foundation and motive of love to God is His intrinsic excellence. When Moses exclaimed, Who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like unto thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? Exodus 15, verse 11. He discovered an excellence and glory in the divine nature which filled his mind with esteem and inward delight. Love to God does not differ in its nature from love to any other object. 
If you love your friend, unless your love be base and mercenary, it is because you see something in the character of your friend that is amiable and lovely. In the exercise of true love to any object, there is pleasure taken in the object itself. Thus, the excellence of God is a foundation of all sincere love to Him. True love to God essentially consists in being pleased that He is just such a being as He is. Is His wisdom unerring? His power irresistible? His purity unblemished? His goodness universal and disinterested? His justice inflexible? His grace infinite? Are His designs all eternal and immutable? These are excellencies which fill the newborn soul with pleasure and admiration. On such a being the mind can rest as its chief happiness. In the favor of such a being it can prefer to every other enjoyment. There is a vast difference between such an affection and that selfish and unhallowed friendship to God which terminates on our own happiness as its supreme motive and end. If a man, in his supposed love to God, has no ultimate regard except to his own happiness, if he delights in God not for what he is, but for what he is to him, in such a sentiment there is no moral virtue. There is indeed great love of self, but no true love to God. But where the enmity of the carnal mind is slain, the soul is reconciled to the divine character as it is. God himself, in the fullness of his manifested glory, becomes the object of devout and delighted contemplation. In his more favored hours, the views of a good man are in a great measure diverted from himself. As his thoughts glance toward the varied excellence of the deity, he scarcely stops to inquire whether the being whose character fills his mind, and in comparison of whose dignity and beauty all things are atoms and vanity, will extend his mercy to him. It is enough for him that he supremely regards his own glory. So long as God is brought into view, he feels that it were impossible for him to be miserable. His soul cleaves to God, and in the warmth and fervor of devout affection he can often say, Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none on the earth that I desire beside thee. As a heart panteth after the water brooks, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. Psalm 73, verse 25 and 42, verse 1. Nor is it less obvious that with this sentiment of delight in the divine excellence, there is combined a benevolent regard toward him and the interests of his kingdom. It is the ardent desire, the highest wish to every sanctified mind, that in all his works and all his designs, by all his creatures in all places of his dominion, God should be glorified. Benevolence towards God is a constituent part of love to him, the infinite being who is capable of enjoying an infinitely brighter degree of happiness than all other beings beside, necessarily shares largely in the benevolent affections of every devout mind. Nor does the view we have given exclude the idea of gratitude to God. While the first exercise of love to God is and must be antecedent to the persuasion that God loves us, no man who loves God for the excellence of his character can refrain from loving him for his communicated goodness. That the God of heaven should uphold, bless, sanctify, pardon, and save a wretch like him, angels have no such cause for gratitude as this. Such is the nature of this sublime affection. 
And it is important to remark that wherever it exists in the soul, it bears predominant sway. It is supreme love. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Matthew 10, verse 37. God neither requires nor will accept a divided heart. He is a jealous God, and no rival may participate in the affection due to him. I do not say that love to God is never intermitted by a baser affection, for the best of men have their seasons of declension and sin as well as of advancement in spiritual vigor. Still, when the love of God actually exists in the soul, every other love is a subordinate affection. Here then have we one very obvious characteristic of true religion. Do my readers know by experience what is to love the infinitely great and ever-blessed God? You must be conscious of your love to God before you have scriptural evidence of His love to you. You have just as much right to call in question God's love to you as you have a right to call in question your love to Him. Is then your heart right with God? Do you love God for what you imagine Him to be or for what He is? Are you pleased with His character and do you love every part of it? Do you love His holiness as well as his grace, and his justice as well as his mercy? Do you love him merely on account of his love to you, or do you love him because he is in himself lovely? Do you love him merely because you hope he will save you, or do you think you should love him if you suppose he would damn you? Is your love to God supreme? Whom do you love more than God, in whose character do you behold more beauty? Whose blessedness is the object of warmer desires or more vigorous exertion? To whom are you more grateful? It can be no difficult matter for you to reply to these inquiries. There may be danger, but surely there can be no necessity of being deceived in a case so plain. Supreme love to God is decisive evidence of the renewed heart. When the soul is ushered from the darkness of sin into God's marvelous light, it beholds God in an infinitely different light from what had ever beheld Him before. God is everywhere. There is a non-expressible beauty, a mild glory in almost every object because it is a work of His hand and reflects the excellence of His nature. Think how excellent a being God is, and how exalted would be the happiness to enjoy Him to perfection, and to be swallowed up in Him forever, to see and to love that which is infinitely lovely, to behold and to adore that which is supremely adorable, is a character and blessedness of the heavenly world. The early dawn of the spiritual light, the first glow of this pure affection, is the glimmering of that sacred fire which will burn with a purer and brighter flame throughout interminable ages. Do you then love God? If so, the question as to your own spiritual condition is at rest. If you are a friend to God, God will be an everlasting friend to you. Nothing shall separate you from his love, neither angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus the Lord. Romans 8, verses 38 and 39. Repentance for Sin 
A mere glance at the ruin and recovery of man is enough to convince us that of the religion of fallen beings repentance forms an essential part. It is alike significant of the character and indispensable to the happiness of the converted sinner to be penitent. In the order of gracious exercises, repentance follows love to God. An affectionate view of God prepares the mind to take a just view of sin. As it is impossible to repent of having sinned against a God that we hate, so it is impossible not to repent of having sinned against a God that we love. When the heart has been renewed, when the soul, enlightened by the divine spirit, sees the beauty and the loveliness of the divine character, it cannot seriously reflect upon a life of sin without unfeigned grief. True repentance is to abhor sin as committed against God, to abhor ourselves for sin, and to reform. Repentance, like every other grace, is a gift of God and the reasonable and indispensable duty of men. And there are considerations which the mind of man perceives and which the Spirit of God makes use of in the production and exercise of this grace which give it a peculiar character. The leading thought which influences the soul in all godly sorrow is the intrinsic vileness of sin. It is not enough to feel and acknowledge that we are sinners. The mind must be imbued with a deep and settled conviction of the great evil of sin as committed against God and as a wanton and wicked violation of His most holy law. The very definition of sin is that it is a transgression of the law, 1 John 3, 4. In this you discover its true nature, an appropriate malignity. It is a violation of all law, a willful disregard of all authority, and a consequent hostility to all the holiness and happiness which a conformity to law would necessarily secure. We cannot now speak of the pernicious consequences of sin until how a view of these opens the sources of godly sorrow in the soul. The main thought that affects the mind of the penitent is that he has sinned against God. Sin is contrary to every attribute of the divine nature and is the abominable thing which God's soul hateth. And the penitent sinner feels that he is a perpetrator of this foul deed. He has been sinning against a great God. He has been rising up in rebellion against his legitimate authority. He has done what he could to pour contempt upon his infinite majesty and excellence, to trample upon his goodness and forbearance, to despise his grace and diminish and destroy his influence in the world. He has not only done this, but he has done it with a calm and deliberate purpose and in defiance to the strongest inducements to an opposite course of conduct. He sees also that he has sinned always, that he has been cherishing a totally depraved heart, which has never intermitted its iniquity and never ceased from its unprovoked and ungrateful disobedience. Now when a mind that has been renewed by the Spirit of God makes these internal discoveries, it is not surprising that it should be filled with utter abhorrence of all iniquity. 
To such a mind, sin appears in its native odiousness. It is vile. It is utterly detestable. It is exceedingly sinful. He abhors it as committed against God. The thought which most deeply affects him is against thee. Thee only have I sinned. Psalm 51 verse 4. Nor is it enough that he abhors his sins. He abhors himself for sin. He is sensible that he is a vile transgressor, that he has no excuse for his iniquity, and is altogether criminal, that the evil of his transgression is chargeable upon himself alone, that he deserves to be blamed rather than pitied, and that he might well bear the blame as well as endure the curse of his iniquities to all eternity. There are seasons when his views of sin are comparatively languid, and there are also seasons when they are deep and thorough, when they pierce and rend the heart and fill it with the bitterness of ingenuous sorrow. Oh, he feels that his transgressions are multiplied, and that his iniquities testify against him. His laughter is heavy, and he goes bowed down to the earth. He is abased before God. He loathes himself in his own sight for his iniquities and abomination. It breaks his spirit to look back and survey the multitude of his transgressions. If you could follow him to his closet, I doubt not you would often hear him cry with the bemoaning servant of God. Oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift up my face to thee, my God, for mine iniquities are increased over my head, and my trespass has grown up into the heavens. Ezra 9 verse 6 an essential part of true repentance also consists in actual reformation. It exhibits itself in real life. The penitent feels the force of considerations which restrain from sin. He is afraid of sin and dreads its aggravated guilt. How shall I commit this great wickedness against God? Though a sinner still, he cannot remain a sinner in the sense in which he was a sinner once. He manifests a desire to honor the God he has so long dishonored, to undo what he has done against the interest of his kingdom, and repair the injury he has caused to the souls of men. There is no genuine repentance where there is no forsaking of sin. Still to go on in sin, to practice iniquity with greediness, with constancy, and with perseverance is incompatible with the nature of that sorrow which is unto salvation. Such is true repentance. This is that godly sorrow of which the scriptures speak that worketh repentance to salvation not to be repented of. 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10 But before you apply these thoughts in the examination of your own character, allow me to advise you that there is a false and spurious repentance, a sorrow of the world that worketh death. 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10 Saul and Esau, Ahithophel, and Judas were penitents, but their repentance needed to be repented of. The damned in hell are weeping and mourning and must weep and mourn without end, but they are not the subjects of godly sorrow. A child will weep under the rod and often grieve and afflict his heart because he expects to be punished. While he is at a great way off from ingenuous sorrow for his fault, 
Is there not reason to fear that there is no small degree of repentance which arises from the fear of punishment without hating sin? It is one thing to mourn for sin because it exposes us to hell and another to mourn for it because it is an infinite evil. It is one thing to mourn for it because it is injurious to ourselves, another to mourn for it because it is offensive to God. It is one thing to be terrified, another to be humbled. A man may tremble at the apprehension of divine wrath, while he has no sense of the intrinsic vileness of sin and no true contrition of soul on account of it. There is also the sorrow which arises merely from the hope of forgiveness, such as the mercenary repentance of the hypocrite and the self-deceived. Many, it is to be feared, have eagerly cherished the expectation of eternal life, and here begun and ended their religion. Many, it is to be feared, have eagerly cherished the hope of mercy, and here begun their repentance, who have mourned at the last. In all this there is nothing that is truly virtuous, no godly sorrow arising from a sense of the intrinsic turpitude of sin. With this illustration of the nature of true repentance, we think you may decide the point as to your own good estate. Those who are true penitents are born of God. Suffer me to inquire, do you know anything of genuine godly sorrow for sin? Retire into your own bosom and ask yourself questions like these. Do I possess any settled conviction of the evil of sin? Does sin appear to me as an evil and bitter thing? Does conviction of the evil of it increase? There are moments when heaven and hell lie out of sight. How does sin appear then? Do you hate it merely because it is ruinous to your soul or because it is offensive to God? Do you hate it because it is sin? Is your repentance deep and sincere? Is sin your greatest grief? Which grieves you most, your sins or your misfortunes? What sacrifices are you willing to make to be delivered from your sins? Do your sins appear many and aggravated? Do you discover sin in a thousand forms and new expressions which you never discovered before? Do you mourn over the sins of your heart? Do you abase yourself for your innate depravity as one that was shaped in iniquity and conceived in sin? Do you mourn over your vain thoughts and carnal affections, over a life of sin, ingratitude and profligacy, over your unprofitableness and unfaithfulness? Does it grieve you that you were worldly, proud, and selfish, that you have lifted up your soul into vanity and panted after the dust of the earth? Does it grieve you to the heart to call to mind that you have sinned against God? When your eyes behold the King, the Lord of hosts, are you constrained to exclaim, Woe is me! When you look on Him whom you have pierced, are you constrained to cry out, I am undone. The degree of godly sorrow is by no means to be overlooked in your self-examination. When God touches, He breaks of the heart. When He pours out the Spirit of grace, there are not a few transient sighs that agitate the breast. There are heart-rending pangs of sorrow. Is the reader experimentally acquainted with such godly sorrow? 
Can no solitary hour, no sequestered spot bear testimony to the bitterness of your grief? Does anything grieve you more than that you have ten thousand times pierced the heart of redeeming love? Do you abhor sin and turn from it? Are you conscious of being afraid of sin as well as of an increasing tenderness of conscience whenever you are tempted to go astray? If so, then you have testimony that the work of grace is begun within you. Testimony as infallible is the sincerity of your repentance. Whoso covereth his sin shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall find mercy. Proverbs 28, verse 13. Faith in Christ. There are errors on the subject of faith in Christ which it is nowhere more important to observe and avoid than when we consider it as a test of Christian character. There are those who affirm that the faith of the gospel is nothing more than a general assent to the doctrines of revelation, unaccompanied by love for them or a dependence on Christ for salvation. It is not necessary to remark critically upon this description of faith, for every man who reads the Bible must perceive that faith in Christ is there described as a holy act. But if it is nothing more than the assent of the understanding to the doctrines of the gospel, then it is possessed by some of the vilest men on earth as well as by the fallen spirits in hell. James 2 verse 19 There are also those who teach that the faith of the gospel consists in a strong persuasion of our personal piety. If a man believes that he is one of God's elect people, that Christ loved him from eternity, that he died for him in particular, and that he is a regenerated pardoned sinner, this persuasion is by many supposed to constitute him a believer in the scriptural acceptance of the term. Hence, the stronger a man's persuasion of his own interest in Christ and the blessings of his salvation, the stronger his faith. And hence, the sentiment has obtained that unbelief consists not in believing or doubting that we are Christians, and all those fears which disturb the peace of good men, and all those apprehensions lest they be deceived in their hopes and fail of everlasting life, are stigmatized as unbelief. Now, that these cannot be either the faith or unbelief of the gospel is abundantly evident from a number of considerations on which we cannot enlarge and will merely suggest. Nothing can be the object of saving faith except what is revealed in the scriptures. Now, it is nowhere revealed in the scriptures that any of us in particular is pardoned and justified and individually a partaker of Christ's redemption. And if anyone imagines that this revelation has been made to him in particular, he deceives himself, and the truth is not in him. Besides, the scriptures always represent faith as terminating on something without us, namely on Christ and the truths concerning him. But if it consists in a persuasion of our being in a state of salvation, it must terminate principally on something within us, namely, the work of grace in our hearts, and how inferior is such an object of faith to the all-sufficiency and glory of the great Redeemer. It is not easy to give a definition of faith that comprehends all its properties. 
in its most general character, it is reliance upon the testimony of God's word. It is receiving the truth and the love of it. The Apostle Paul uses the phrase, Receive not the love of the truth, as synonymous with the phrase, Believe not the truth. Faith, however, when viewed as an evangelical grace, possesses altogether a peculiar character. It is not simply reliance upon the divine testimony, but particularly upon the truth of God revealed in the scriptures concerning Jesus Christ. So the scriptures themselves represent it. These things are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life in his name. John 20, verse 31. If thou shalt confess with thy mouth Jesus as Lord, and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Romans 10, verse 9. I cannot better describe this grace than by adverting to the state of mind which precedes and exercises it. When, by the operations of the Holy Spirit, a man is made sensible that he has sinned against the Holy God, he deeply feels that he is fallen, guilty, condemned, and undone. He sees that he lies at the mere mercy of that God whom he has offended, who is under no obligation to pity him and may most righteously destroy him forever. Under the righteous sentence of a holy law, he does not see how God can be just and yet extend pardoning mercy to a wretch like him until he become acquainted with that soul-receiving truth that he so loved the world as to give his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him might not perish, but have everlasting life. John 3, verse 16. In this wonderful expedient, he discovers a remedy which vindicates the authority of the divine law and the dispensations of pardoning mercy, and relieves his soul from the oppressive apprehension that there is no forgiveness with God. Through this Redeemer he ascertains that he is invited and commanded to return to God with the hope and assurance of mercy, and is confirmed in the belief that whosoever cometh to Jesus Christ, he will in no wise cast out. John 6, verse 37. And he is emboldened to go. The good deeds, the religious performances, which once used to encourage him, afford him no encouragement now. But renouncing them all, he returns to God with an implicit, active, and exclusive reliance on Jesus Christ and his redemption as God's appointed way of saving sinners. He approves of this method of salvation. He delights in it. He chooses it as his only refuge. He no longer rejects the mystery of the cross, nor stumbles at the cornerstone which is laid in Zion but glories in the cross of Christ and is happy to commit his all for immortality on the sure foundation. And thus doth he receive and rest on Christ alone for salvation as he is offered in the gospel. And this is faith in Christ. This heavenly grace is one of the fruits of the Spirit and evidences of regeneration. He that believeth shall be saved. John 3.36 No man can say that Jesus is Lord, but by the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12.3 Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. 1 John 5.1 
Do you possess this heaven-inspired grace? What do you know of Jesus Christ as the Savior of sinners? What glory have you ever discovered in that great moral wonder, God, manifest in the flesh, as the prophet, the priest, the king in Zion? Have you from the heart received the record that God has given of His Son? Have you discovered anything in Christ that qualifies Him to be your Savior and that can encourage guilty, miserable men to trust to His grace? Is He precious to you as to those who believe? Is it your happiness to commit your cause to better hands than to your own? To relinquish all your self-righteous confidences and cast yourself into the arms of Jesus? What things were gained to you do you count loss for Christ? Is everything you are and have done and can perform in your own view nothing that you may win Christ and be found in Him? Not having your own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, Philippians 3, verses 8 and 9. In a word, with a just view of the character and a supreme attachment to the person of Christ, can you yield yourself into His hands as a full and complete Savior? Can you look to Him to be sanctified by His Spirit, to be governed by His laws, to be protected by His power, to be saved by His death, to be disposed of at His pleasure, and to be the means of promoting His glory? If you can, all is well. In the comprehensive promise of that covenant to which faith makes you a party, lie concealed the life and immortality of the gospel. Life and death, earth and heaven, things present and things to come, joys high, immeasurable, immortal, what shall I say? All are yours, and ye are Christ, and Christ is God's. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 22 and 23. Evangelical Humility Evangelical humility consists in a just view of our own character and in a disposition to abase ourselves as low as the vileness of our character requires us to lie. The pride of the human heart casts a veil over the character of men and aims to conceal their worthlessness as creatures and their ill desert to sinners while the humility of the gospel throws aside the veil and discovers that native worthlessness which ought to sink the creature in the dust and that moral deformity which ought to fill the sinner with self-abasement. The natural spirit of men is an independent, haughty, and proud spirit, and nothing is more certain than that this spirit is in a measure subdued in every regenerated mind. It is no unwelcome sentiment to a good man that he is absolutely dependent on God. There are seasons when he feels that he is a worm and no man. Not more readily does a little child hang upon the care and kindness of its parent, nor the abject poor depend on the daily bounty of their fellow men, than the humble child of God, the daily pensioner upon the divine bounty, conscious of his dependence, waits only upon God as a source and sustainer of his every expectation. Nor is he less sensible of his unworthiness than of his dependence. At best he feels as an unprofitable servant, the habitual emotions of his soul are those of the returning prodigal when he said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight. 
and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Luke 15, verse 21. The people of God also cherish quite as deep impressions of their ill desert as of their unworthiness. Most deeply do they feel that it is of the Lord's mercies they are not consumed. Lamentation 3, verse 22. They do not complain of God, though he should sink them as low as they deserve to lie. But from the heart they approve the justice that condemns, while they are allowed to admire and adore the grace that rescues from the condemnation. Nor are sentiments like these a mere dictates of the understanding, but inwoven with their habitual experience and conduct, and manifested both toward God and man. How is a humble and contrite sinner, when in the more immediate presence of God, borne down under the impression of inexcusable deficiencies? How does a view of his moral corruption keep him near to the earth? How is he ashamed and abased that he is no more holy? How does he desire to be divested of all his pride, to empty himself and feel less than nothing and vanity? His more happy moments are those in which he is enabled to lie abased before God, and in which he has increasing desires to be kept humble to the end of his days. This humble temper also naturally expresses itself in his relationships with his fellow men. It is indeed no part of his character to make whining pretenses to humility, but if he truly desires more to be humble than to appear humble, this unobtrusive and modest spirit will evince itself in his walk and conversation. Take my yoke upon you, and learn of me, saith our Lord Jesus, for I am meek and lowly in heart. Matthew 11, verse 29. A man of an ungovernable and ungoverned spirit surely bears little resemblance to the character of Christ. It is not denied that some good men have vastly more native haughtiness, vastly more of the overbearing spirit of the carnal man with which to struggle than others. But notwithstanding this, real Christians are humble, and their humility will necessarily express itself in the modesty and meekness of their habitual deportment. Let nothing, says the apostle, be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than themselves. Philippians 2, verse 3. The spirit of Christianity is congenial with its precepts, though it is not in the present life perfectly conformed to them. There is such a thing as in honor preferring one another. There is such a spirit, and however those who indulge in the hope of their good estate may be disposed to shrink from the test, such is the spirit of all Christians. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.stillwater.com swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail 
at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.